With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another reality in another time. It would have been cause for a curtain call at PNC Park. And yes, those things have happened. They are a real thing, just not in 2020, and not for Kibrian Hayes. Good morning to you. Good Wednesday morning. I'm Dan Kovacevic of DK Pittsburgh Sports and the newly reborn DK Sports Radio Podcasting Network, which you can find on any and all platforms that are out there. We hope that you set us to auto-downloads. makes a big difference. Brian Hayes made a difference for the Pirates. Yeah, they lost 8-7 to in 11 innings to the Cubs. A lot of the usual ways, you know, they, they got to the late innings and they kept rallying, they kept fighting. Cubs were up 6-1 to in that game. Pirates came back and tied at 6-6. Forced extras, got to extras. Cubs took the lead. Pirates tied it up in the bottom of the 10th. It, it would have been a fun game under normal circumstances, but for a whole lot of reasons, that's not where we are. Nothing was more extraordinary about this game than the debut, of course, of Brian Hayes coming up finally from the Altoona Satellite Camp and making his presence known with a double that he lasered off the left field walls. And that was some uh, excuse me double that's just picking up chalk down the left field line. He he murdered this thing 108 miles an hour. A home run that tied the score in the eighth, and it came after an hour and change rain delay. Like, he just walked up, like, out of nowhere. Like, it was nothing. And put a 400-foot bomb over the center field fence, rounded the bases like it was nothing effectively stole home, and that's over-dramatizing what he did to tie the score again later, but it was a, a comebacker to the mound. He was at third base, and you're thinking when the ball is off the bat, it was off Anthony Alford's bat, and you're going, I mean, he's he's a dead duck. What's he doing? But then you see him flying, and you see the pressure that that put on the Cubs' battery to make a play, and I still thought they had him, but he executed a perfect slide and got under it, Hayes did. Also made a couple of pretty sharp-looking picks at third base. Not at all a surprise, given his extraordinary defensive pedigree. As a three-time minor league gold glover, something that's not been done, like, forever in the minors. So, yeah, he, he had himself a day, the kid did. This is this, for those of you who just kind of float along paying attention to the Pirates whenever it's 
convenient. This this is one of those cases. It's okay. It's okay to ask questions about this kid. Uh, he is the son of Charlie Hayes. Those of you who are a little bit more veteran in your observations of baseball will recall Charlie Hayes was a third baseman for the Pirates and for a whole bunch of teams, chiefly the Giants. Pretty good player, you know, not a star or anything like that, but a good serviceable major league player for quite a few years. And this kid is, I guess now it's was, the Pirates' top prospect in the system. He also was on most baseball prospect lists fairly highly, certainly in the top 50. So he came along with some pedigree, and now he had this debut. And if it sounds like I'm setting you up for something, I kind of am here, because these things always bug me a little bit. Already, the reaction to this was, it's about time, chosen one, hope. Oh, look, maybe... Maybe Kibrian Hayes is going to be a great baseball player. You can't rule it out. You can't rule it out with someone who comes up, has the kind of talent that he does, the, the raw talent. He obviously has the bloodlines. He has other things going for him. But I get a little edgy anytime it happens with anyone, uh, a rookie that makes a debut where you just go, whoa, there's something super special here. I always take the other angle on it and step back and say, all right, hang on a second. What's really going on here? So actually in between hazes at bats, I, I, I'm up in the press box. The game wasn't all that exciting despite the score. I, I really uh, wasn't all that impressed with the quality of the baseball at hand. So I'm, I'm poking through it. Let's, let's look at his minor league stats. Let's give them a, a sharp look here. Let's see what his power numbers were. When you look for power in the minors, you're not looking for home runs, by the way, for anybody who doesn't know that. You're always looking for doubles. He had a terrific ratio of doubles and extra base hits. They always tell you that those transform magically into home runs when you get to the majors because of the caliber of pitching. You're seeing more strikes and other positive factors related to your your own strength, maturity, and development. The ball just goes farther. So he, he had that. The rest of it doesn't excite all that much. Uh, without getting into all the advanced stuff, to try to put this in the most relatable terms possible, he's a 265 career hitter in the minors. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. That's okay. By every account, he also was underserved in his development and instruction. I know, shocked face, right? While under the Neil Huntington slash Kyle Stark system, Huntington and Stark were the last two executives in all of baseball to have picked up on the launch angle trend. Remember all the bragging that they did back five, six years ago about how they were basically inventing the shifts and they were doing this and that and there. They were the pioneers. And one guy actually wrote a book about how they were reinventing the game. I can't remember the name of it. 
Highly recommended, though, no doubt, if you're if you're in it for laughs. <laughs> These guys love to talk about stuff like that, but then Launch Angle came along and the Pirates were completely left out, finished dead last in the majors in home runs a couple of years in a row, while everybody else was figuring out that, hey, if you swing the bat a certain way, you keep the ball off the ground. If you keep the ball off the ground, you have an infinitely better chance of reaching base. Get it over the infielder's head. Sure, there's going to be some flyouts along the way. There's going to be some disappointments. Line drives right at somebody or whatever, but get it up over the infielder's heads. So the very first hit that Hayes has in his big league career, to remind you, is that lasered double off the left field wall. Crushed it. Maybe in the minor leagues in Indianapolis and in Altoona, that is a ball that stays somewhere in the infield, and he doesn't get a hit for it, and his batting average and all the other advanced peripherals suffer for it. And then, of course, he comes up and blasts the home run. Thing was a no-doubter, too. I mean, he went sprinting out of the box because this is his first game, but this is one that a lot of other major leaguers would have just been like, whoa, look what I did. Very, very, very impressive. Wonderful debut. But let's keep it in check. In fact, let's make sure that Derek Shelton keeps it in check, which is what I kind of did with this question that I asked Shelton after the game at PNC Park. No, I think we, we just make sure that we talk to him about the things that he's doing and how he's doing it and, and realize that he's another player on our team and he's somebody that was... Highly touted to come up, but I, I think we have to make sure that we don't put expectations on him. We don't have to, to look at him like, you know, he's the guy that's going to take us to the promised land. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to help us move forward, and he's going to be one of them. Understand, please, what I'm telling you here and what I asked the manager that led to that wonderful answer isn't dumping on the kid. Cabrian Hayes is 23 years old and has the world in front of him. Good for him. Let's hope he gets it. Let's hope he is the fifth statue outside PNC Park someday. Let's hope that he is the reason to steal one of Shelton's own lines from that answer. The one who helps them to the promised land. But let's not lay that on him simply because he is by far the best of a tremendously bad lot, meaning the Pirates minor league system that was ravaged and left barren by Huntington and Stark. Let's not hold Hayes up to some higher standard because you think a lot more of him than you might of Colin Moran or Jose Osuna. That's not how this should go. This kid, if everything goes well for him, will be the best version of Cabrian Hayes that he can be. And if that sounds like I'm playing, you know, school teacher or whatever, so be it. I think that's only fair to him. Not to apply any kind of pressure on him that he needs to be the future or the face or the foundation of this or that. Like Shelton said, he can just be a part of it. He can just be a part of it. And if he ends up being just... A very good player. Let's say what 
he was in the minors. He was not a great player in the minors. Great defender. But, but overall, including the bat, not necessarily a great player. If he ends up being a very good one and the Pirates hold his rights, which they do for the following six full years before he can become a free agent, that's a mighty big window. That's more than good enough. And it also tells you and reminds you for the millionth time that if only these guys, pointing again to Huntington and Stark, had been able to draft more than one such player where the Pirates could be right now instead of where they are after 12 years under those guys. Just be fair to him. That's that's that, that, that's the only thing after a game like this, because this game, he could go 0 for his next 21, and all anyone's still going to remember is how he did in this first game. First impressions are so powerful, but just remember that everybody was all amped up about Mitch Keller, too, and Mitch Keller's got all this talent, and he does. And Keller, not Hayes, was the top overall prospect in the system. And he comes up and he gets rocked in Cincinnati, and then he ends up with some astronomical ERA over a handful of starts his rookie year, and we are done with him. Like, he got hurt this year, and everyone says, ah, they didn't lose anybody of any value. But a year and change ago, we were wild about Mitch Keller. This is great. There's a pitcher. He's going to be the next, I don't know, if not Garrett Cole, Doug Drayback, something. And then we pulled the plug on him. Some of these guys, some of these talented younger players are going to require some kind of patience, but also some realistic, realistic expectations. Not just Hayes, not just Keller, but I'm also talking about Brian Reynolds, Kevin Newman, who are not having good 2020 seasons. Figure out, look around the diamond. When you hear Ben Charrington say that there are players on the current team who will be part of this when we're good, when we're contending, try to think about who those guys are and maybe, just maybe, you know, look at them fairly, but also look at them as a, you know, as a fun thing that you can get behind, including when they struggle. When we come back, I'm going to do... I'm going to complain about something else that happened in a game last night, but I'm going to tie it to a hockey game in Toronto. If that sounds like a stretch, just stay tuned. Welcome back. As promised, some really bad umpiring at PNC Park last night was happening roughly the same time there was a really bad call in an NHL game up in Toronto and I'm reminded all over again of how much better that situation meaning officiating in general could be with very little work this segment of daily shot is always brought to you by our friends at Luxembourg Garbett Kelly and George that's a personal injury law firm in our region that represents injured people. 
whether it's automobile accidents, workers' comp, medical malpractice. The attorneys at LGKG, as they're called, have been for a long time, pride themselves in doing what they say they're going to do. That's their thing. I met with Larry Kelly myself, my wife did as well, last week up in Cranberry. And that was the point he kept making. We say what we're going to do, but then we go and do it. That law firm has been around keeping such promises for over 80 years. It's pretty rare air. Luxembourg, Garbett, Kelly, and George has offices in Cranberry, Newcastle, Beaver Falls, Butler, and Elwood City if you want to see them in person. If you want to learn more online, go to lgkg.com. Just those four letters, lgkg.com. Or call them on the phone at 888-842-5454. That's LGKG. So John Tumpain, he was the umpire, you'll recall, who saved that life on the 6th Street Bridge downtown a couple years back. Someone was standing at the edge of it, presumably ready to jump, and he held the person passionately but firmly until the Pittsburgh police came along and ended up taking over from there, putting that individual into care. Hopefully that individual is still doing great. Hopefully that individual is doing better at their job and their life than Tom Payne did last night as an umpire. He had an at-bat with Colin Moran up at the plate for the ages. You'll not see an umpire whiff this badly on consecutive pitches in your lifetime. Moran took three strikes in that plate appearance. All three were verified, confirmed by every available piece of technology to be outside the strike zone. One of them way outside the strike zone. It takes a lot to rile up Colin Moran in one direction or the other, either to get him to smile, uh, to get angry, anything. He's just the steadiest Eddie you'll find anywhere. And he couldn't believe it. And he steps out of the box and he says something. And as he's heading back to the dugout, one of the benefits of covering these sporting events with no fans there is you can hear everything. The pumped-in crowd noise doesn't affect you that much. My goodness, the bad, bad things that were coming from the Pirates' dugout. I don't even know who it was. I couldn't tell. It was coming from the manager's end. Shortly after that, when Tumpain didn't give a similar call to one of the Pirates pitchers on the mound, Derek Shelton, to his credit, comes out and just loses it, which he had to do. He had to do that. I think there have been a couple other occasions. He's been ejected three times already in 30-plus games, so it's not like he's on some bad pace, but I thought there were other situations this year where the Pirates clearly were getting disrespected by the umpire. And look, you are what you are when you've got 10 wins to this point. You're not going to get the benefit of the doubt, but that doesn't mean you have to like it. It doesn't mean you have to accept that the rules are being flouted in favor of the unwritten rule that the contender gets the call. 
And in this case, Shelton had to go to bat, figuratively, for Moran. He had to go to bat for everybody on his team who would be hitting, who'd be getting squeezed by this kind of garbage. My goodness, such a simple solution, you know? We could put a man on the moon in 1969 and we still can't agree to just call balls and strikes via technology. It's so simple. Tennis gave into it actually way before anybody else did on foul calls. Was the ball in or out? Simple as that. Remember all those famous John McEnroe blow-ups and everything? They all went out the window. Not all of them, but most of them. They were all about whether the ball was in or out. It was never about anything else with the chair umpires. Made for great theatrics and everything. I'm sure the umpires didn't enjoy it, but the crowd and the viewing audience did. None of it was necessary. Tennis figured that out. They put in goal line technology in soccer. That was next. Eventually, the NHL will figure out that you can put something in a puck that tells you conclusively whether or not it has actually crossed the plane of a very simple goal line. There are solutions for this stuff. The NHL had its own butchered call. I thought, anyway. Last night, the Flyers survived elimination by beating the Islanders 4-3 to in overtime. This after blowing a late two-goal lead. I don't think bodes particularly well for the Flyers, considering they've had to win twice like that now in this series already. It's not a great method of survival. But the way the Flyers won this game in overtime, I'm not even going to mention who scored, because it just I don't think that the Flyers deserve any credit for the goal, because they were given, and I mean given, a power play in OT that they shouldn't have been able to touch with a 10-foot pole. The Islanders were on a four-check in the Philadelphia zone. Matt Martin, who's no angel, to say the least, is in on the four-check. And he's going after Robert Haig of the Flyers. Haig feels the backside of Martin's blade against the outside of one of his ankles. He takes an additional half-stride and then spills as if he has been shot with an elephant gun. Goes down like it's nothing. Even if you think Martin was guilty of tripping, and I could see that opinion in it, because you're not supposed to put your stick on the other player, plain and simple. If you don't want a penalty, don't put your stick there. But even if you think that Martin was guilty and you have four total officials on the ice who have countless games and years of experience and knowledge of the sport and its behavioral patterns, and you see that this guy took a dive, meaning Haig from the Flyers, and you know it, that's when you make one of those infamous offsetting calls. You know the ones I'm talking about where people go, wait a second, how can it be both a trip and a dive? Easily. Because the initial guilty party does either try to trip you or trips you, and you, the person who has been tripped, goes out of their way to embellish it, to look all theatrical, 
Both things absolutely can be possible at the same time. And that would have been the right call. That would have been the safe call. Or you could have just used some common sense and thought, wow, the Islanders are in the attacking zone. You know, they're deep on the forecheck here. The puck really wasn't all that near Hague at that point. Maybe, just maybe, he wasn't being an idiot and trying to trip the guy for no reason in overtime of a game in which they could have advanced to a conference final for the first time in 27 years, referencing the Islanders. How can you mitigate against that? Diving is sticky, but just as there are technological solutions for the baseball situation that I brought up, there's a different one in hockey. When you see a player committing a dive, and it's not always as easy as this one to see, you might not make the call as an official. Even the most experienced, maybe especially the most experienced officials, still don't find that to be an instinctive call to make because it's not something they've been making their whole careers. But make that an eye-in-the-sky thing. You know the way the NFL examines every game that's played on a weekend? And even if a, a certain hit or a certain technique wasn't flagged on the field with all the chaos and commotion that's going on around the various officials, if they find it on film and they study it like crazy, you will get fined or suspended, almost always fined, but there are suspensions that result from the most egregious hits, including hits that were never flagged. Why couldn't the NHL do that to eliminate diving as a behavior? Why couldn't the NHL say, hey, let's just look at these games for other things and eliminate that type of behavior so that a player doesn't even think about it. Do you really want to be branded a diver? Do you want to have that posted somewhere? Do you want to have that fine announced by the league? Do you want to be that guy? Even if it's just like $7,500 or something like that, you know? I mean, that's not nothing to, to me or you, but it is to these guys. You give them some tiny little fine or whatever, that's not the thing that hurts. It's the embarrassment. It's the, ooh, yeah, he really was taking a spill there. That wasn't very sportsmanlike. Very, very easily solved. Very easily solved. Why don't we just solve these things? Better yet, why don't we take another break and come back and do just a little bit of football? kickoff at MetLife Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey. That's a, a Monday night game, which I think will still come with some little extra flair to it. That's the broadcast that goes on to ESPN. It's the only game that's being aired at that time. I'm expecting that the ratings for NFL's games and in general their return, meaning all the ancillary programming, 
will be extremely high. If you'll recall the NFL draft, which was held at the height of the pandemic shutdown, were virtually two-thirds higher than what they normally are. We couldn't believe that there was an actual event occurring. Remember that? Well, this will be actual football. This segment of Daily Shot is always brought to you by our friends at the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank. In normal times, one in seven people in our region are food insecure. That includes one in five children. And now with the pandemic, the overall need for food is that much greater. If you happen to be among those in need of food assistance, or if you would just like to support the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank, visit pittsburghfoodbank.org. Spell out those three words. That's why I said them like that. Visit pittsburghfoodbank.org on the web. One dollar can provide enough food for up to five meals. The Steelers are back at practice today at Heinz Field, 1.30. I'll be over at the one tomorrow, and I'm looking forward to it. I know I always say that. I always say you're looking forward to it. What is it that you don't look forward to? Look, after all these months, I'm just looking forward to covering sports, you know? I want to be in the stadium. I want to see real things. Eventually, I really want to get back to interviewing people and doing all those other things that I've been doing my whole life. But in the interim, I will just look forward to a routine practice at Heinz Field. And the one thing that I'll be watching for, in this case, more than any other, plain and simple, I'm not over there looking for surprises. I, I leave that kind of stuff to, to Dale Lawley. He's the one that's, he'll get all worked up about discussing the 55th or 56th man on the roster and how this guy and Ulysses Gilbert might step up and do this and everything. And and I get that. I appreciate that. And the, 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 the beats that I've been on when I've been on them full time, it's amazing how much larger than life silly things like who's going to be the fifth starter or the 12th or 13th man in a bullpen uh, or the third string goalie, the one that ends up going back to Wilkes-Barre or whatever. I'm not overthinking things when I get to Heinz Field. Uh, I want to see Ben Roethlisberger. I want to see him throw a football. I want to see him feel good. I want to see him look as happy and energized as he has every time I've seen him to date. Everything about the Steelers starts with him. It doesn't end with him, but it starts with him. And when you hear some of the things that he's talked about, and when I see him looking as invested as he does with every snap on the field, even when he's not in those huddles, he's engaged with something, he's talking to someone uh, he's got a wide receiver. He's got a running back. He's got someone that he's talking to. For all I know, and we're kind of we're not that far away, but we're also not that close to be able to pick up exactly what they're saying. They could just be talking about what they had for breakfast, but I don't think so. You can see the body language too. You can see how into it he is. Ben feels like he has something to prove. 
I'm not sure I've ever understood that chip about him. He won a Super Bowl so young. Uh, as the cliche goes, they can never take it away from you. He did not play well in that game, for those of you who go pretty far back as football fans. So then he had another one in which he did play well. He drove the team down the field. Santonio Holmes gets all the credit for all the catches, but there was one guy throwing all those passes to beat the Cardinals. After the Steelers, by all rights, should have been eaten up by Larry Fitzgerald. It was Ben Roethlisberger that led them down the field to victory in one of the truly great drives in football history. What's he have to prove? So he just kept playing, you know, and he also had a ton of other success and set all kinds of other records and threw for 5,000 yards three years in a row. Made, to a very large extent, not entirely, Antonio Brown what he ended up becoming, meaning on the field before all the lunacy. What does Ben feel like he has to prove? I don't know. I honestly don't care, though, either. Whatever it is that motivates him. You know, I've talked with Ben about this over the years. I've had discussions with him immediately after really, really heated moments. And his story will change as to what it is that's got him ticked off or who's got him ticked off. It's almost like he's looking for something. He wants to grab onto something that is his anchor is his guy good great if he's somehow happy and energetic through that all the better all i want to watch i'll leave the rest to uh all the various super football gurus and everything else here i want to see a happy ben roethlisberger tomorrow i'm happy that you listen to this show thank you so much we will be back tomorrow your front door your car your gym locker, your gun. Safety is a habit. Learn more about how to keep guns safe and secure. Visit projectchildsafe.org.